So it's 2022, the year of mission is the theme. That's what we're hitting. But we really got to back up or zoom out because mission is really the fourth point of our vision. If we just talk mission, then you would just say, well, what are we on a mission for and who are we on a mission for and what are we, like, why? And so what our vision as a church does is it expands it out to help us see that we're part of something bigger than just a mission. So the vision of Northgate Church is summarized in four words, and that's grace. And we have a downward arrow for grace because we see God's grace descending upon us from above, right? And our role is just to receive that grace, that grace that we just sang about. So that is where our mission, or I'm sorry, our vision starts, is with receiving the amazing grace from God. Once we have received it, we will naturally be compelled to respond in worship, which is the upward arrow. We will reorient ourselves to the high king of heaven, and he will be our highest treasure. As we do that, we will hopefully connect in community. So the arrows point in to show that that is our vision, that as we worship, we will then connect in community with other like-minded believers. But like I said at the beginning of the service, if we stop there, then we are nothing more than a country club. We must, this year, focus ourselves on mission, on going out and engaging and helping people experience the love of Christ. As we talk about our mission in the next two Sundays, not today, but in the next two Sundays, we'll really dive into our mission of engaging, evangelizing, and establishing, equipping. But this morning, I want to focus on grace, worship, and community and how that leads us into mission. So when we start with the word grace, we should probably define it. It's a word that's thrown around all through our society and particularly in religious circles. And so sometimes it's helpful to pause and make sure we all mean the same thing when we use the word. I think there's lots of ways that you could define grace. It sort of depends on context. But generally speaking, when I talk about grace as it relates to God and his word, I'm talking about the simple definition of undeserved favor. So that's that definition I'm asking us to work with, undeserved favor. That's what grace is. So it's, it's a favor that you receive, and favor maybe is too small of a word, but it's undeserved favor. So let's talk about what's not grace. What's not grace is, is payday, right? When you receive your paycheck at the end of a week, that is not grace. You worked, and you earned, and you deserve that paycheck. That is what is due you. And it's wonderful, and it's good, and it's blessings, but it's not grace. It's earned favor. Now... We're just coming off of Christmas, so when you receive a Christmas gift, that could be grace. It just depends on who gave it. I hesitate to bring up Santa Claus in church, but I will because I think it's a helpful illustration. Santa Claus is not motivated by grace. We love Santa Claus in our house, um, but it should be made clear to your children and mine that Santa Claus does not operate off of grace. He sees you when you're sleeping and he knows when you're awake. Once you get older, it gets creepier, right? Um, He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sakes. And we know that he has the list, right? He has the good list, and then he has the naughty list. And if you're on the naughty list, then you get coal in your stockings. The whole framework is set up, and it's not grace. It's a tool that we can use in our parenting to get our kids to behave. And I'm not saying I haven't used it in the last few months. I'll use any tool if it means they stop throwing a fit in public. And so Santa won't bring you that gift if you don't get off the floor right now. But that's not grace. But for those of us, obviously, here we sit in church this morning, we know that the true meaning of Christmas is grace, though, isn't it? 
The true meaning of Christmas is that Jesus came, that free, undeserved gift of God. That's why one of the verses for us this morning is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared, and that's what we celebrated just recently at Christmas, was the grace of God appearing in that stable in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And what you should see in this verse of Titus 2, 11 to 12 is what we see in our vision. We see that, you know what, once we receive the grace, what does it do? There's a progression. Once you receive the grace, it trains us then to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is what makes Christianity distinct from all the other religions of the world. All the other religions of the world are, and quite frankly, most of the other thought processes of the world is, we will motivate people by reward. That is the distinct difference of Christianity from other religions. Christianity's motivation is, what if we could motivate people by the grace of God? And so this amazing grace of God is what motivates us and trains us to live godly lives, to worship Him with our lives. That's the progression that you can see, but, but it all starts with grace. It has to come back and start with grace, and it doesn't necessarily, that grace doesn't necessarily start on Christmas. The grace actually starts on page one of the Bible. I mean, when, when God spoke and said, let there be light, what did the world, the universe, do to deserve light? When he hung the sun in the sky to rule the day and the moon to rule the night, what did, what did the skies do to deserve the, the sun to be there and the moon to be there? When he put the trees in place and he put the animals there, what did they deserve? What did Adam and Eve do to deserve the life that he breathed into Adam's lungs? What did they do to deserve this great world that God gave them? What did you do to deserve him breathing life into you as he knit you together in your mother's womb? What did you do to deserve the beauty of the snowfall of the last few days? What did you do to deserve the sun rising and the sun setting? Nothing. This whole world is a gift from God. This whole world is a demonstration of God's undeserved favor being poured out on us. James tells us that it, um, all every good and perfect gift descends down from above from our Father of heavenly lights. It's all God's grace. And if it's hard to have that framework all day, every day, but in those moments when we're reminded of it, those moments when we realize, oh, wow, this everything is God's grace descending upon me to for me to receive. It's all God's grace. Then that motivates us to worship all day long. What's special about Sundays is we really go out of our way to make sure we see and receive that amazing grace when we gather here for an hour. And that's why this hour, oftentimes, I hope, feels really good. Because we are being redirected to receive His amazing grace that fills us up and so that we respond with worship. It all starts with grace. The problem is that oftentimes we skip grace. We skip it. So we just come to church and we walk in the room and then we start singing and we just decide to worship. Or that doesn't happen at all, and we just stay at home because the church attendance numbers in America are like lower than they've ever been. There's all kinds of articles on, you know, the low attendance of church, right? It was low and then the pandemic, and now it's low again. And But the interesting thing is we still are worshiping things. 
Just because we're not going to church on Sunday doesn't mean that we all stopped worshiping because God created us to be worshipers. So what happens is when we stop worshiping God, we just end up worshiping something else. Right, So we just realign our affections and our desires to other things. So we, we stay in bed on Sunday morning, but we still go and we sit at the foot of not the pastor or the worship leader, but the, the politician or the talking head on TV, and we sacrifice at that altar and we follow those teachings. Or we begin to value above all other things some kind of an image or, or a diet or a health style, healthy way of living. And then all of a sudden we, we're not getting up early for church, but maybe we're getting up early for other things. And, and then the next thing you know, we look and we say, you know what? We're not worshiping God, but we didn't stop worshiping, did we? Our career becomes more important and we work more. We, we still worship money or, or success or maybe we worship our children or we worship our grandchildren. So maybe you're, you're hearing me, but you're saying to yourself, no, that's not fair. That's not worship. I don't worship my children. I don't worship my exercise. And that's, you're probably right. You're probably right. But worship, if you look it up in the dictionary, it simply means to give worth to something. Honor shown to an object. In Christian worship, so when we say, okay, well, what about Christianity, the worship of Christianity? Well, a good definition for that is worship is valuing or treasuring God above all else. So only you can answer it, the question, I can't answer it for you. What are you treasuring above all else? Are you treasuring your Lord and Savior above all else? Above the success, above the material things, above that person Are you treasuring God above all else? Because we're designed to worship, and we will continue to worship. But if you remove grace, then you're going to worship anything and everything. You're not going to worship nothing. You're just going to put something else in that grace category. And probably you're going to burn yourself out trying to earn the favor of whatever that thing is. The good news of Christianity, the good news that Jesus came to share with us, the good news that we read and receive is that you don't have to burn yourself out. You have his undeserved favor. It is poured out on you every day, particularly the grace of God has appeared to us in Jesus, bringing us salvation. And you can just receive his grace in faith. And once you do that, it will motivate you to life of worship. To serve him and live a godly life in worship to him. That's how we need to respond. Oftentimes, and this is what I don't want you to have happen. You say, okay, I'm going to decide to worship God. That's the application of the sermon. I'm going to make a decision to worship more this year. I read a great quote this week. It says this. People do not decide to become worshipers of God. Rather, the gospel produces worshipers. So it's the New Year's. New Year's resolutions are all over the place. And so a New Year's resolution can be like, I'm going to worship more. And the heart of that is really good. But what this quote is helping us see is like, okay, but people do not decide to become worshipers of God. Rather, the gospel produces worshipers. So I want to I want to receive God's amazing grace. And once I receive it, I will be compelled to worship Him. Oh, I found my new favorite story of what the grace of God looks like. It's a great illustration. It was um, written by Timothy Paul Jones. He's a pastor and an author. He tells this story that I'm about to read for you in his book 
called Proof. It's a true story of his life, and it illustrates the gospel really well. So allow me to read a portion of Timothy Paul Jones's book, and it helps us understand this amazing grace that once we experience, we will worship. He writes this way, I never dreamed that taking a child to Disney World, Disney World could be so difficult. That's a great opening sentence. Captures the reader. Or that such a trip could teach me so much about God's outrageous grace. Our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family. I, Timothy, am sure that this couple had the best of intentions, but they never quite integrated the adopted child into their family of biological children. After a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption, and we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into our home. For one reason or another, whenever our daughter's previous family vacationed at Disney World, they took their biological children with them, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. Usually, at least in the child's mind, this happened because she did something wrong that precluded her presence on the trip. And so, by the time we adopted our daughter, she had many pictures of Disney World, and she had heard about the rides and the characters and the parades. But when it came to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she'd always been the one left on the outside. Once I found out about this history, I made plans to take her to Disney World. The next time, a speaking engagement took our family to the southeastern United States. What I didn't expect was that the prospect of visiting this dream world would produce a stream of downright devilish behavior in our newest daughter. In the month leading up to our trip to the Magic Kingdom, she stole food when a simple request would have gained her a snack. She lied when it could have been easier to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. And as the days on the calendar moved closer to the trip, her mutinies multiplied. A couple of days before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter into my lap to talk through her latest escapade. I know what you're doing. I know what you're going to do, she said flatly. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? The thought hadn't actually crossed my mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make some sense. She knew that she couldn't earn her way to the Magic Kingdom. She had tried and failed that test several times before. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. In retrospect, I'm embarrassed to admit that in that moment I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, if you don't start behaving better, you're right, we won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. I instead, I asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded. Her brown eyes were wide and tear-rimmed. Are you a part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and what's wrong, but you're a part of our family and we're not leaving you behind. We, we went and spent a magical day at Disney. And then in our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times. But her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked, So how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled it deep into her stuffed unicorn. And after a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It wasn't because I was good. It's because 
I'm yours. God's grace isn't favor that you can earn by being good. God's favor is something you receive by being his. And once you become a part of his family and you receive that amazing grace, you must worship. You are compelled to worship. It all starts with grace. It leads naturally to worship. And then we hope and pray that it then will lead into community. From there, it'll go to mission, and we'll talk about mission next week. But let me just take the last few moments to highlight community. Community is all through the pages of Scripture. You could highlight it uh, on page one, uh, as, as he says, It is not good that man should be alone, so he creates Eve. You could see it even before that in Genesis 1, whenever God talks about himself in the plural. He says, let us make man in our own image. He does that because he exists in the Trinity. He exists as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He exists in community. We could look at the whole Old Testament and just say a a quick summary of it is it's God telling his family, the family of God, how to live in community. And then he's telling us a story of how they successes and failures at living in community with one another. You could look at Jesus. You realize that Jesus, when he starts his public ministry, doesn't need the 12 disciples. But Jesus chooses to do his ministry in the context of community with disciples around him. We could look at the Apostle Paul. He writes much of the New Testament. And his letters are written to churches that are trying to live together in unity as a community of the family of God. From Paul, we get the beautiful metaphor of how the family of God, is it's like a body. And some of us are hands and some of us are feet and some are noses and ears. And we all come together with all our differences to form what? One community, one unified body of Christ. But I'm going to take us to one of my favorite verses, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25, to make the point about community. And I think it doesn't just make the point about community, but it also for mission. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I think that's our mission. Not to neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. If we sort of look backwards through this verse and look at the day. So what's the day that's drawing near? Well, it's the author's way of, of, of succinctly capturing like judgment day or the day of the Lord. This idea that we are, are, we are all moving towards a day when Christ will return and he will restore all things. So as we move closer to that day, it's getting darker instead of brighter It's getting more discouraging as we move closer to that day. And and it's we are moving closer to that day. Logic just demands it. We're one day closer to that day than we were yesterday, and certainly much closer than the author of Hebrews was. And as that day is drawing near, it is discouraging times we live in. I don't know about you, but my experience of turning on the news is not encouragement, but discouragement. You look and you see what's going on ideologically all around us and you see how such basic uh, biblical principles seem to be dissolving around us, right? The basic idea from Genesis 1 that God created men male and female is disintegrating around us. You see that the sanctity of human life seems to be disintegrating around us. You see that just the basic idea that there is ultimate truth that can we should submit to in our lives, that's dissolving around us and so it can be very discouraging ideologically, 
But beyond all that, it's just discouraging on the day-to-day because you know what? People are sick. And people are dying. And many of us are living in the, in the tension of a financial crisis. We have a crisis of truth. We don't know who to trust anymore. I don't. There's deceit all around us. There's deceit on our screens, but even in our relationships, we don't know who to trust anymore. And then you know, we could keep on going, but we don't have to keep making the point, I don't think. The day is drawing near. Discouragement and darkness is, is in, increasing and not decreasing. And now is not the time to neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. Not the habit of you, because here you sit. My friend Bruni sits in the back row at the 9.30 service every Sunday. Bruni works full-time. Her husband is at home recovering from colon cancer. They had a surgery to remove cancer in his colon. He's currently going chemotherapy again. She's his caretaker. Her family network is in Puerto Rico. She works full-time. She takes care of her husband who's recovering from surgery. She has every excuse in the world to not come to church. I'm stressed out. I'm busy. I'm tired. She's here every Sunday. And every Sunday I have the opportunity to talk to her. Every time she tells me, I have to be here. I can't not come. This is my family. And I need encouragement to go through this week. See, Bruni teaches us this truth from Hebrews chapter 10. As the day is drawing near, as discouragement is increasing, as darkness feels overwhelming, we cannot neglect gathering together to encourage one another and provoke one another to love and good works. And Bruni is our teacher to that end. That's our vision as a church, that we would receive that amazing grace, that we would respond with lives of worship, connecting in community, and then truly living our lives on mission. Because we have something very special, don't we? We know Jesus. But there's a lot of people out there that don't know Jesus. There's a lot of people out there that are discouraged. And I know you're discouraged too. But they're discouraged without Jesus and without his hope, without his life. And our mission is to go out of here and tell people about Jesus. Because people need the Lord. The worship team is going to remind us of that. They're going to come up and prepare to lead a song. But let me close us in prayer before they do that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've opened our eyes to the truth. We thank you that, that we were lost, but we have been found. We thank you that we were once blind, but now we can see. If there's anyone in this room or listening online that can't yet see you, is still lost, I pray that they might have their eyes opened by the power of the Holy Spirit, even in this moment. They would admit their sin, believe in you as their Savior who died on the cross and rose from the dead, that they would choose to follow you with their life. For all of us who have experienced that new life, Lord, we give you praise and worship. We ask for your strength and courage this week to take this good news to people who need the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.